Aloha, this is Ben Pregnow, and you're listening to the weekend teaching from Hope Chapel in Kihei, Maui. This week, we're hearing from Kyle Knight. All right, well, I'm Kyle, one of the pastors here. So good to continue our series. If you've come for the first week in a while, we are on our second week going through the book of Romans, which I'm really excited about. Such a powerful book, and this is the second week. And so last week, Ben covered the theme of this book, really looking at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and which the theme is, is the righteousness that comes from God, the truth that God justifies the guilty, condemned sinners by grace and grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And he shared these two sentences of really giving us the theme of the book. One of the main themes is through faith in Christ alone, a righteousness from God is imparted to sinners. Through Christ's atoning sacrifice, God removes his holy wrath toward us and brings us into a loving relationship with himself forever. Amen? Well, this book is about the gospel, and Paul is writing to... Christians, to believers. He says in Romans 1 verse 7, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. See, many Christians believe that the gospel is only for unbelievers, but the reality is Paul is going to show us that the gospel is for believers and it's for all the resources that, or it has all the resources we need to grow and flourish in the Christian life. See, we never graduate the gospel. It is to continue to transform and inform every aspect and every area of our life. Romans addresses a very practical problem in the church in Rome. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles with all these different cultural backgrounds. The Jews had special diets, code of laws, had a whole different political view. And there was a season where the Jews actually were kicked out of Rome ordered by Emperor Claudius, but then after a while they came back, but when they came back, the church was now being run by the Gentile Christians. And so now there was issues and drama over how should we worship, what should the the service look like, how should the music sound, how loud should it be, all these different issues, right, that were there. And also Rome was a very difficult city to be a Christian in because it was a a city that opposed God. And culturally, they went against all the things that God had designed in humanity. And so Paul will show them the gospel creates a new humanity with the ability to overcome all the differences, political, cultural, stylistic, also how to navigate a culture that opposes God in all these different issues. And in a similar way, for you and I in a church in 2024, where our church is made up of many nationalities, cultures, different backgrounds, different people like different styles of different things, and we live in a culture that is blatantly opposes God and God's word and his truth, and we're headed into an election year, which, does division ever happen then? Right? And so this book is going to strengthen us and give us truth to allow us to have a proper biblical view. It will allow us to properly discern and navigate the array of difficult cultural issues so that we know what 
and how we should unite and what we should divide over, if that makes sense. We don't just pick topics that are just maybe talking points in the news, but we go, what does God's word say is truth? And that's what we stand upon, and we unite around that, and that's what the gospel does. And so as we read this book, it can be a challenging book too. It can be difficult. There's times you're going to read it, and you're going to go, what the heck is going on? But it's a transforming book. I love the way one pastor put it. He says, the book of Romans will delight the greatest thinker. It will captivate the mind of the consummate genius, and yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked, and then it will clothe you with eternal elegance. You know, even the apostle Peter said, Paul's letters are sometimes hard to understand. And so my encouragement, one, is grab a resource. You know, one of our founding pastors, Jason Spence, a brilliant Bible teacher, one of the uh, study Bibles that he used was the ESV study Bible, and I still use this. There's so much great information there. Get one for yourself to be able to navigate some of these hard passages. But my encouragement is this. God will work powerfully through his word, so don't stop studying and reading it, even if it's challenging. One pastor put it this way to illustrate this point. He says, a scientist may say that mother's milk is the most perfect food known to man, and the scientist may give you an analysis showing you all the chemical compounds. He may give you a list of all the vitamins in the milk and estimate uh, the estimate of the calories given in the quantity, but a baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content and will grow day by day. So it is with the profoundest truths of the word of God. Some of us may be able to analyze it. Some of us may not. But all of us do well to drink and grow. Amen? Well, let's dive into the Bible. Open up your Bible to so Romans chapter 1. You can open up the Bible app if you want, and let's pray as we dive in. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit and your word to transform each one of our lives, no matter where we are in our spiritual life or what's going on in our world around us. May you speak directly to us and transform us. May we see your love, God, in Jesus' name, amen. In these first 17 verses, we're going to see that Paul introduces the man, the message, and the mission. The man, Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul was an apostle of God, but before Paul was called, Paul was a Pharisee, a sect of Judaism hyper-devoted to the law. In Philippians, Paul tells us that he was not just any Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he, he trained under Gamaliel one of the most sought-after teachers of the time who you didn't choose him to be your teacher, he chose you. And Paul would have had probably most of the Hebrew scriptures memorized, if not all of them. He was so passionate about keeping the law that he said, if anybody thinks they are good at keeping the law, humbly, I was better. I was good at being good. <laughs> he was so passionate so devoted that he got to the point where he was willing to persecute and kill Christians thinking he was doing something good. In Acts, we see the killing of Stephen, and who was standing by giving approval but one only Paul, who at the time went by Saul. 
His zeal for religion, to work for the approval of God, produced pride, self-centeredness, judgmentalism, and self-righteousness. And that is what religion produces. But the gospel is different. The gospel is different. The gospel teaches the opposite of religion. It teaches that God offers salvation not to those to earn as a reward, but to those who are unworthy, yet receive a gift. Because the gospel, Paul now says, I am a servant. The word literally means slave, a bond servant. This is the opposite of what Paul had been going for as a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he desired to, desired to elevate himself above all others. And now because of, the gospel of Jesus, because of the gospel of Jesus, he now lowers himself to serve others. See, the transformation of the gospel of God's grace produces humility and generosity. You can even see this in Paul's name. He had two names, Saul and Paul. Before being a Christian, he went by Saul. Remember Saul? Saul was a king of Israel, a proud king who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But now he goes by Paul. And in Latin, Paul means little or small. So after the gospel, Paul saw himself as small, loved by God, a receiver of amazing grace, transformed from Saul the mighty to Paul the small. See, Paul, a servant, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Before, Paul wanted to be known for his talents, his good deeds, and now, after the gospel, Paul wants to be known only for the gospel and what God has done. That's the man. Okay, we're done with verse one. We have 432 more to go in Romans. Ready? <laughs> Let's grab some water. The message. The message. What made Paul so confident in his ministry that he was willing to go around the world to places where he was not welcome to endure countless hardships to get this message across? Why are we as a church so eager to share the gospel with those around our community and the world, it's because the message is such good news. Continues in verse two, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through the, his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul starts right here in the book with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Even before he brings up his resurrection, he brings out this point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Do you guys remember the story in Luke 24, right after Jesus rose from the dead, two of his apostles are walking along the road to Emmaus, and as they're walking along, they're discussing about how the, they're sad because Jesus just died, and Jesus shows up next to them, but he doesn't reveal himself to them, and he just begins to talk to them, and what does he do? He goes, where have you, they go, where have you been? We're sad. Jesus died, and Jesus begins to explain to them how all the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus thought that it would be more convincing that before revealing his resurrected body, how every single part of the Old Testament, written over 30 different authors, over 1,500 years had consistently told one message, one point, 
that Jesus is coming to rescue. Imagine that conversation. Jesus probably started right in the beginning in Genesis, that he was the, in the beginning was the word, and that God was creating the heavens and the earth through, that he was creating the heavens and the earth, and that he was the fulfillment of the promise God gave to Adam and Eve of the seed that would come and crush the serpent, and yet his heel would be bruised, or that he would explain in Exodus that he was the Passover lamb whose blood would be sprinkled on the doorpost of our hearts so that we could escape slavery and death, or that in Leviticus that he was the great high priest, the holy place, that he's the temple where we meet with God, or from numbers that he was the ever-present guide, our pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day to guide us, and he would never leave us or forsake us, or from Deuteronomy that he was the coming prophet who would be greater than Moses. That's just the first five books that he would have shown that it all points to him, to Jesus, with specific prophecies like in Isaiah, that he would be wounded for our sins, pierced for our transgressions that he would be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his kingdom, there would be no end. Or in Esther, that he is that ever, or in Esther, that Jesus is our righteous advocate in the throne room, risking his life to save ours. Or in Hosea, that he is the ever faithful husband who is always pursuing his ever unfaithful bride. Or in Jonah, that he was the prophet of God that was cast into the storm of God's wrath so that we could be brought in, or in Micah, that he's the everlasting king, born specifically to be prophesied to be born in Bethlehem to reign forever, and in Zechariah, that he was the promised one to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, and 300 other specific prophecies that tell the specific time, place, character, and the ministry of the Messiah. Can you imagine that? See, the truth of all the Old Testament pointing to Jesus is abundant evidence that Jesus is God and that all scripture and the gospel is true. And Jesus explains that. Verse 3, which he promised beforehand through the prophets of the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who is a descendant from David according to the flesh, the Messiah was promised as he had come and has come. The promised Jesus would come through the offspring of Abraham, but then in 2 Samuel, we see that he will also come through the offspring of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." But Jesus also was the Son of God in verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God and the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, not only all the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, but Jesus rose from the dead. You see in the disciples, their lives were turned upside down. They changed drastically after they saw the risen Savior Jesus. This is a historical fact that Jesus rose. His resurrection proves that all that he said is true and that only God has the power over death and Jesus demonstrated that he is God, the Son of God, conquering sin and death by raising three days later. Amen? Jesus, fully God and fully man, 
Paul continues in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. See, the message of the gospel is so unique because it's by grace. We receive it by grace. You know, it's common to hear people even today to say things like, all religions are the same, which you know at that point that they haven't studied them all. But if you think about it, there are many similarities within religion. Most religions operate off of this. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Different religions fill in different things to obey or do. If I obey long enough, if I'm good enough, then God will accept me or I'll come into this certain state of being. But the gospel is different. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm accepted not because I obey well enough, but because of a gift of God's grace. And because of my thankfulness of God's grace, I attempt to obey as an act of love, not as an attempt to save myself. It's by grace and grace alone. There's a story of C.S. Lewis, who's a famous author and theologian and apologetics, and he's a, a professor at Oxford, and there's a story about him walking down the hallway, and as he's walking down, a bunch of his uh, colleagues are in a room, and they're discussing, and they're trying to come up with how all religions are the same, and they're writing on the chalkboard all the different characteristics, and they see C.S. Lewis walk by, and they say, they know he's a Christian, they say, hey, come in here, show us, out of all these, how Christianity is different from all religions. So C.S. Lewis walks up to the chalkboard, he writes one word, grace, and he walks out. It's because grace is the defining difference. It's the gospel of grace. It's undeserved favor from God for salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. You know, Paul understood grace. Think about it for a minute. Do you remember his conversion? On the road to Damascus, Paul is literally persecuting Christians. He's killing those who are following Jesus. He is directly in opposition as an enemy to who? To Jesus. An enemy. And what does Jesus do? Jesus meets him on the road. Jesus extends incredible grace to Paul. Jesus saves him by grace and grace alone, an enemy of God. Did Paul deserve to be saved? Did he deserve to have forgiveness from Jesus whom he was persecuting? No. It was all grace. And believer today, if you're a follower of Christ, God shows his love for us in that way we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were enemies to God, he reconciled us to him. While we were dead, he made us alive. Amen? Amen. It's all by grace. Paul, by God's grace, was called to be an apostle. There are two main uses of the term apostle in the Bible. There's the capital A the authoritative apostle authorized to write the New Testament, which means it's the original 12, and Paul specifically commissioned by Jesus. But then there's the use of the small a apostle, which is the commission given to bring the gospel to others. It just means sent ones. And in one sense, every Christian is sent. 
As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Paul was an apostle in both senses. Having been seen the resurrected Jesus, and he was sent and commissioned by Jesus himself, he was also compelled, like all of us, to bring the gospel message to the world around. And so in verse 5, where it says, to bring about the obedience of faith, this phrase means that obedience is required, but it's not the obedience that, it's an obedience that flows from saving faith. So true faith in the gospel results in life change. That's what this is talking about. We bring the gospel so that people would receive it by grace through faith, and the fruit is good works. And for the Christian, we share the gospel with one another or with ourselves to be reminded of the gospel to produce growth in areas of our life that need growth. And so we and Paul all do this in, as it says here, for the glory of God, for the name of Jesus. We share the gospel with unbelievers for the glory of Jesus. We share the gospel with ourselves so that we could have growth in our own lives for the glory of Jesus. And we share so that people would receive it in faith and that that faith would follow works of obedience out of gratitude and thankfulness to the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 6 through 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called by, to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addressing the Roman believers or Christians says, you also were called, and you're loved by God, and you're now saints. Now, it's important to notice this word used for these believers called is the same word that's used in verse 1, talking about Jesus calling Paul to be an apostle. And if you're a Christian today, God has called you to belong to his eternal family. And since you are called, you are loved by God. And since you are called and loved by God, you are now a saint. Paul uses this word saints at least 38 times to describe Christians. And the focus each time is not on behavior, but on status, identity. A saint means a holy one or sacred, set apart for God's purposes. Being a saint doesn't mean you're sinless doesn't mean that you're perfect. We're all growing and we still struggle with sin, but we are fully forgiven. We are made holy because of Jesus's righteousness given to us because of the work on the cross. And so therefore we are now called saints. And this is true of every Christian. That's, that's your identity. You are called a saint. This is your new identity if you're a follower of Christ, is you are a loved son or daughter of the most high God, you are accepted. You are now holy, washed, clean. All your sins are forgiven, and you are set apart for God's holy purposes. See, understanding this message of God's grace and love towards you results in obedience because we understand that all of God's word is for our freedom and for our joy, and out of gratitude and understanding that he has our best interests, through, or that he has the best things in plan for us because he created us and knows what's best for us, that we understand that his word is good, that he loves us because of the gospel. So we can walk in obedience out of gratitude and thankfulness unto Jesus. We can live out our new identity. So that's why it's so important for you and I, because we get tempted to go all these different directions. It's so important for you and I to remember daily God's love for us in the gospel 
to remember that I'm accepted, my identity, who he says I am, and then that will allow us to begin to walk in our true identity of who God has called us to be, remembering God's love every day, remembering this message of the good news given to you and I. That's the message. Now, the mission. Because of God's grace to Paul, because of his new identity, his mission was to proclaim the gospel. Remember, he says, we covered this last week, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We are called to proclaim this message. It is our mission. And the gospel gives us this new identity in Christ, so we are now to live out that new identity by being on mission to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers and to believers. See, as God is a calling on Paul's life, God has a calling on your life. You are a saint. You are sent by God to make disciples that make disciples. You were called by God and sent into the world to represent Jesus and this message. I mean, do you believe that for a moment that you specifically are personally called to be on this mission? Not just those on staff, not just me, but every Christian, you are called by God himself to bring the love of Jesus to those around you. You are called by God to love your neighbors with the gospel, your coworkers, the family you've been entrusted with or born into, the hobbies you're into. You are called by God to love the people around you and share the love of Christ through the gospel message with them. That's our mission. And verses 8 through 13, as we read through them, we'll see Paul addresses Christians in Rome, and these verses can serve as an example of how to live out this mission that God has called us to. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul gave thanks to God. He praises God. He gives thanks for the church. Paul had never met them, and yet he was thankful for them. And what was he thankful for? He was thankful for their faith in Jesus. Because of their reputation of faith, news had traveled about this Roman church that they had great faith in Jesus. I think it's important to note, again, that it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Rome. It wasn't easy to live out your faith in the culture they were in, a city that had no place for God and morals, ruled by tyrants who ruled with an iron fist. Literally, on the streets outside of Rome, people would be crucified, hanging on the side of the road as an example if you went against Rome. They were on the verge of serious persecution. It was a culture that was full of lust, Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, living for their own pleasures. It was a culture that went against what God had said was right and wrong. It was a difficult culture to stand as a Christian. And yet this Roman church was known throughout the world for their faith in Jesus. It's amazing. That's what they were known for. You know, some churches are known for their famous pastors. Obviously not this one. And that's not a dig on Ben, okay? I'm talking about myself. Some churches are known for their architecture. Some churches are known for their ministries. But this church, 
was known for their faith in Jesus. Oh, that we would be people that are known for our faith in Jesus. Are you known for your faith in Jesus? Or is it private? Do your coworkers know about your faith in Jesus? Do your neighbors know about your faith in Jesus? That we would be people who are known by our faith in Jesus. Amen? Verse 9 through 13. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so as we see this, we see Paul is a man who prays. He's a man of prayer, and specifically, he says here that he's been praying without ceasing to go and see this church in Rome, and that he wants to go there. Why? He wants to go there so that he would be mutually encouraged and built up in visiting them. And Paul prayed without ceasing for this. But it's interesting. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul prayed without ceasing to go there. Yet, this prayer wasn't answered for a very, very long time. You know, sometimes our prayers don't happen right away, do they? Maybe they aren't answered in the way that we wanted them to be answered. What do we do when we pray about something and it's not answered? We do what Paul does. We keep praying. We keep praying. Maybe you've been praying for a loved one for a long time. What do you do? You keep praying. See, there's power in prayer. And it's the way that we live out this calling and our mission. It's how our lives are transformed through the gospel. Is when we pray, God moves powerfully. And if you're like me, If you're like me, often I downplay the power of prayer. I'll say things like, well, all we can do is just pray as if it's a last resort. It should be the first thing we do. You know, it was during the tragic fires in Lahaina that during that time, we as a church, we were just doing everything possible to help. And I personally, I was helping sending teams to go to Lahaina every day to distribute food and to pray with people and to help. And every day we're sending out these teams and and we're serving. And as a staff, we are just going full bore. At the same time, we're emotionally drained. At the same time, there's tension and stress because of all the emotions and just doing everything possible, working every day in order to help in any way we can. And in the midst of doing that, Many of you know I got in an accident. I had to spend five days in the hospital, and then I have a hospital bed in my living room, and I'm laid up in my living room going, God, why have you taken me out of the fight? Why? Every day we're going and helping people, and the, the staff is stressed, and, 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 and they need support and encouragement. Why have you taken me out? I really felt like God told me, he goes, what's the greatest way to fight a spiritual battle? through prayer. And I've given you this living room and this bed right here to be on the front lines to fight this battle in prayer. 
Prayer is not a last resort. There is power in prayer, and God has called us to pray, and he moves through prayer. Amen? Amen. Let us be a people. Let us be a church that prays. Verses 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, four key words I want us to notice here about the mission that God has called us to. Obligation, eager, and not ashamed. Obligation, eager, and not ashamed. Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel, but in fact, he is eager and under obligation to share it with all. It says here to share it with the Greeks and barbarians, and just briefly, what does that mean? Well, uh, uh, the Greeks means those who speak Greek, and the barbarians means those outside of the Greek culture, and which would include Jews and Gentiles alike. Basically, he's talking about everybody here. Paul was obligated to share the gospel. The word used here means debtor. Paul was in debt to share the gospel with others, to believers and unbelievers. Why would he be in debt to share the gospel? Well, there's two ways to be in debt. Either somebody loans you some money and you have to pay it back. It's one way to be in debt. The other way to be in debt is if somebody gives you a large amount of money for somebody else, then you are in debt. You are obligated to get that money to the other people, right? Say you work for Maori Rescue Mission, and a great generous donor comes along and gives you $500,000 for Maori Rescue Mission, and you decide as the staff member to put it in your own bank account for a little while. Uh, After a little while, what would we say? You're a thief. You're stealing. Because where was that money intended for? It was intended for the ministry to go out. And the gospel is given to Paul. It wasn't just for him. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace that he did not earn. And it's such good news that he's obligated to share it with those around him. He's been entrusted with this message by grace and grace alone to bring it to those around him. You know, Ben talked about this last week. He, said, he talked about how the symptoms of sin and the sinfulness of man are all around us. The brokenness of this world is so evident, yet we have the cure. Why would we not share the cure where you can find joy and hope and life and freedom in a relationship that we were created for in God? Paul was obligated to share it with those around him. He was entrusted. You and I, we've been entrusted with the message of the gospel. We are obligated. We are in debt to share this good news with those around us. He was eager to preach the gospel. Again, this is Paul addressing Christians, and the the gospel, again, is for both believer and unbeliever, and he's eager to share it. And this eagerness, how do you grow in eagerness to share the gospel? It's by being reminded of the gospel daily. 
See, as you're reminded of the good news, you begin eager to be eager to share it with those around you. We share it with other believers to remind them of the truth of God's love when we start having false thoughts, when we start being unbelievers in specific areas of the gospel in our lives. Maybe we're having self-doubt or we're beating ourselves up, these different things. We've got to be reminded of the gospel. No, you're accepted by God. You're loved by God. No, he's already paid for your sins. He's already called you a son or daughter. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. We're reminded, so we're eager to share and remind each other of this truth of God's love. And then finally, Paul says he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Again, 16 through 17, it's a powerful verse. I encourage you to memorize, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, where we find this theme in the book is here. And Ben covered this, these verses in great detail last week, so I will not do it. I will just encourage you, go back and listen to it. If you didn't, sound good? Listen to it. Cover those verses. But I will say this. If Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's assuming that there will be people that will be ashamed to share the gospel. And if we're honest with one another, and if you're honest with yourself, there are times where we can be ashamed to share the gospel. Maybe it's because of fear of man, fear of rejection of what other people might think, worried about how people might think when we talk about there's only one God or when we talk about the fact that there is truth and there's absolute truth, that there's a God who created us and he created us a certain way and to live a certain way. And it's actually for our good. When we begin to proclaim these truths, it can be offensive to the world around us. It can be offensive to our culture. But it's the truth, it's the reality, and it's the power of salvation. As we'll learn as we dive into this book, the reality of hell and the payment for sin is real. But the reality of heaven and God's grace is real. And so let us be a people that are not ashamed of the gospel, but we will proclaim it because we know that it is the power of God for salvation, and we know our own testimony. I know what I've been saved from. I know what I've been saved into. I know the joy that I've found in my relationship with God through the grace of God. And when I remember that, it brings me to the place of wanting to share it with those around us. The gospel is the way that we grow. Let us not be ashamed. Daily remembering it. And so my encouragement for us as a church, one application Remember the gospel daily for yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself and begin to share with those in your honor group and remind each other these gospel truths. Like we learned in the Gospel Fluency Workshop with Jeff, that we go and we, we apply the gospel to our own lives. This is how we grow. And then we look for the opportunities with those around us to share the gospel with them. But it starts with that personal transformation of you and I remembering the gospel. What has God done? Who is God? God is holy. He's mighty. He's righteous. He's all-powerful. He's loving. He's faithful. What has he done? He demonstrated his great love for me by sending Jesus to come. He died on the cross for my sins. He gave me his righteousness so that God sees within me a saint, a loved son or daughter. 
I have a new identity. I'm accepted. How should I now live because of this truth? Applying that to your life. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I now? How should I now live? You see, I strongly believe that there's so many areas within my life where I reach out to all these things in the world to try to bring fulfillment or, or joy or happiness. We all do it. Every time I'm doing that, I'm forgetting how much I'm loved and accepted by God. And that's why it's so important to remember daily the grace of God. I'm so loved because as we understand that truth, we won't run to all these other things because Jesus satisfies all that we need for in him is all that we need. Amen. Well, let's pray. And then we're going to respond in a time of worship. And I just encourage you to reflect on God's love for you and that it would boil up inside of you just a great eagerness to proclaim his love to those around you. And so let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for, for who you are. We thank you that you didn't just leave us in our sin, but you came and rescued us by dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the dead. We praise you for that. Thank you for giving us new life. We thank you for this book. You've not left us on our own, but you've given us your guide, reminding us of these truths. I pray we as a church would just proclaim your goodness to all those around us. We'd live on mission. We'd be a church that prays. We'd be known for our faith. And I pray, God, for anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, doesn't know the love that you have for them, doesn't know that they will be in heaven one day. And if that's you, you could pray a simple prayer right now in your heart, a prayer of faith, and God says you'll be saved. Say something like this, God, I believe that I'm a sinner, but I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. I receive you and I believe, Jesus, you are Lord. I surrender my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to connect with you. Visit us at HopeChapelMaui.com and let us know any way we may be able to serve you. You can follow us on Instagram, and Facebook at Hope Chapel Maui. Stay up to date with all the latest. God bless you.